at AC this morning. Now, uh, last week I had uh, I was very blessed with a, a gift from from someone. Uh, had a bag full of socks. So I wore a pair of socks last week. Um, I know, right? But the the socks that I chose to to wear had picture of smiling fried eggs. And so I, I realized as we were here, I was like, yep, the eggs have been fried because it was so hot. So this week I decided to wear, and I don't know if you can see them, but they're, they're reindeer because it is so cool in here. So, but anyway, happy. So anyway, so we're going we're gonna to get into uh, our, our, our next psalm and our summer in the Summer in the Psalm series. Summer series in the Psalms series. Get confused with the S's. So if you will, go ahead and turn to Psalm 130. We'll stand and read through that text here in a minute, but let me go ahead and pray and, and get us get us going. So join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our time together as your people. Father, I pray that we would look so forward to each gathering together as we can fellowship as we can encourage one another as we can can converse with what is going on in our lives whether it is work related or or family related but father i pray that we would get beyond those things and and consider and share what you are teaching us what you are revealing to us either through the word or, or what how we are are growing in our grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ and Father, as we dive into different aspects of your word, whether it is in our, our second Peter study or, or different psalm studies or whatever book or portion of text we are studying on our own, Father, I pray that we are growing our minds and our hearts according to you. Our wills are becoming more aligned to you. But Father, now as we are looking at Psalm 130. Father, I pray that our, our focus is here and now on this portion. What what the, the psalmist was going through here as he wrote it. Our minds are here. Our minds are on Christ as we are gathered here to study. And Father, open our minds to that as we again, we exalt the name of Jesus Christ on high. And it is by his name we pray all of this. Hopefully you have you have turned your Bibles to Psalm 130, and I will invite you to stand as we read through this text. So Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait. In his, in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. And with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You may be seated. As the superscript states, this is a song of ascents. As the Jews who pilgrimaged to Jerusalem for one of the three feasts, uh, they, would, they would go up the ascent into the city. They would sing these psalms. As you can see, there was a long ascent up the road into the city of Jerusalem. These were written, these psalms of ascents were written in a manner meant to be sung. The city of Jerusalem, which is situated on the southern Judean plateau, which is the highest, at the highest point, was about 2,500 feet above sea level. But Jericho is about 700, 800 feet below sea level. And that's where the road began. 
It's about an 18-mile trek from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, 37 miles to the, to the west of Jerusalem was the Mediterranean Sea. About 22 miles east was that lowest point, the Dead Sea. Now, when Jesus says, going up to Jerusalem, like he did in John chapter 5, verse 1, and in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when the, the man was beaten and robbed by thieves and was left on the side of the road, when he, when he was going down from Jerusalem, Jesus was referring to geographical terrain. And as we can see, going up to Jerusalem and going down from Jerusalem. Now again, there, like I said, there were 15 psalms between Psalm 120 and Psalm 134. These are all titled in the superscript, a psalm of ascent. Some of the overarching themes of these psalms are that they are uplifting or of giving, of giving peace. We can also see throughout these, these 15 psalms that God will keep, God will bless, and will be gracious to his people. All great things to sing about during an arduous 18-mile road trip up the barren desert roads from Jericho to the city of Jerusalem. Now David is generally said to have written this particular psalm sometime during during the time he was dealing with the, the matter of Bathsheba. However, there is some disagreement that it could have been also written during the time that he was being pursued by King Saul. Now this particular psalm is short, eight verses, but it is packed, as we just read. However, if you notice, it does not speak of enemies or of overcoming physical difficulties. There are no mockers or workers of evil uh, uh, or workers of, of evil holding the godly ones down. Instead, in this psalm, there is an earnest and ardent prayer of a troubled heart. First, for mercy for his sins, and next, for deliverance from those sins, and last, an exhortation to all men to hope in God. Because he will be a continual redeemer of his people and can find means to deliver them from all their sins and iniquities. Now this psalm, just like Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and Psalm 143, are four psalms that are referred to as penitential psalms. We are all familiar with Psalm 51. It's a very popular psalm. This psalm goes right along with that psalm. It's a penitential psalm. These four psalms speak to the heartbreak that the psalmist has over their own sin. This wretched man who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the words that poured out from his heart over the wretched ugliness of his own sin. That very sin that made him unworthy and unsightly to the God of all creation. The very sin that made him an enemy of God, of mercy, and the God of grace. This, this is the man whose wretched sin made him hostile in mind to the love of God and gave him a heart of stone. Now the tone of this psalm is desperate. It's desperate supplication from the wretched sin that is within what the psalmist says in verse 3 should frighten us to our very core. If you, if you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? And we'll get into that meaning of that very verse later on, but, but if the psalm ended right there, if that was the end, if that is where we left off, there would be no hope. We would be doomed. There'd be no escape, no way out. We'd be in a terrible spot because of sin. The very sin that this man sought desperately to escape from. Now just to, to get some context as to where David might be coming from, let's, let's look back to, to 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1-7, through 7, when the prophet of God, Nathan, was sent to confront him about his sin with Bathsheba. 
So we'll read through that. You can you can turn there. I, it's up there on the screen if you can read it. But but Second Samuel chapter five verses one through seven. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he and he came to him and said, "There were two men in one city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought, which he bought and nourished." And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are. Being confronted with sin is never easy. But do we pray with fervency like this when we recognize sin in ourselves, as the psalmist did in Psalm 130? Do we pray the way the psalmist prays in this psalm when we are confronted? When we recognize in ourselves or when a brother or sister comes alongside us and says, I believe this is sin. Do we pray like Because when we do not pray with fervency, seeking eagerly, offering up our supplications to God for forgiveness for our transgressions and our iniquities, then we can easily, very easily, take light of those sins. We can very easily fall into the habit of asking for forgiveness for sins that that we are, are not specifically confessing. And we ought to confess sins on a very specific level. We should confess them individually and ask for for forgiveness for each one. As each and every sin is a transgression of the holy law of God. And this brings us to our first point. Urgent prayer. Urgent prayer to God. That first verse is, is truly astounding to me, so, so let me read it again for us. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. That's just an amazing way to start this psalm. So let me, let me break this down for us from, from the end to, and not from the beginning, because I believe to, to, to break this down there is actually important to us. It gives us some insight into what the author was was really feeling. Again, we are not given given facts within this within this uh, psalm about the circumstances and the situation that led to this outcry. But here, this man is crying out to God, nonetheless. In many opportunities that I, I've had to stand in this pulpit and, and teach, or or just read the Word of God. I have, I have had I've used inflection when I read. And so when I read something like, Oh Lord, I put emphasis in Oh Lord. Because I believe there's emotional outcry there. Out of the depths, Oh Lord. Now remember that this psalm is, is written in the form of a song, but, but it is, it is a, a song written to remember something specific. Not necessarily the the sin, but the what and the the who did the delivering from that sin circumstance. The what is the redemption from the sin and the who is the Lord. In that phrase, O Lord, or, or O Yahweh, this man who is in deep emotional distress is crying out to his personal God. He's calling upon the personal name of his God to hear him. Oh, Lord, oh, Yahweh, hear me. 
I am pleading to you. I am in trouble. These troubles, these stresses, or afflictions can be can be outward or they can be inward. The, the outward consists of providential arrangements respecting our health, our reputations, property, family, and the state of the church and the world around us. I want us to understand that these are providentially appointed trials and tribulations. Whether they are personal in nature, against a local church, or against the church as a whole. Sometimes we fail to remember that trials are both temporary and are a method for the testing of our faith. The testing is not testing not to bring forth a score. Hey, you were 80% accurate through that trial. But a testing is to make your faith more sure. A testing to make you rely upon and have more dependence upon God through the trial. To rely and have faith in God, in his word, and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28, we know this very well. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. Now the inward afflictions relate to the state of men's hearts. Arising from a clear understanding of the existence. The guilt. And the severity of sin. Of our spiritual insensitivity. Of a discovery of the mischief to ourselves and others. Of the length, depth and number of departures from God, of spiritual darkness in general, and of strange disinclination of devotion, accompanied by apprehensions of divine wrath. I know that's a lot of things there that we might go, what did he just say? So we have an inward affliction that is when our inward, we say that the old man must die. But on this side of glory, that old man does not fully die. It is still raging. It still wants to come back. So it still wants to war against the divine influence of God. It still wants to war against the will of God that God has given us when we have been born again. And so it still wants to pull us away so that is the departure from God. How many times do you want to go your way as Jonah did when he ran from God? How many times do you want to run away when God calls you to do something and you want to say no? How many times do you run? It may not be as far as Jonah did. But how many times do you go your way and not God's way? How severe is it? How many times do you do it? That's what I'm talking about here. Arising from a clear understanding of the existence. How clear are you on the existence of your own sin? All of your sin. What do you do about it? It's not that bad. I live under grace. It's not a clear understanding of your guilt. Now there is no kind of or degree of sin which may not lead us into the depth that also led David into the depth. A little white lie is still sin that deserves death. But there are no depths of outward affliction or of inward affliction known to the penitent, those who desire to have reconciliation with God and desire our sins from which they may cry out unto the Lord now look a bit further into verse 2 he says Lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications 
The word here is in the imperative. Now, when we normally see an imperative in Scripture, it is coming from Jesus. It is coming from the apostles. It is a command. But here, it is being submitted by the psalmist. It's coming from David to God as a plea. Hear my voice. Hear me, Yahweh. In supplications, this word expresses earnestness and a desire for grace and favor. The author here is crying out from the depths of despair. He's not, he's not being pursued by the enemies of God. He's not being thrust down by evil workers. He's being weighed down by the guilt of his sin. He has done, he has done evil against God. And he is crying out by the depth of his guilt to God. It's not an outward issue. It is an inward issue. And he is crying out to God to hear his plea. He is in sin in the things of God. His heart has drifted from full devotion to the God of creation. And he has recognized in his own folly. And he is now crying out to the only one who can right his course. He is pleading to God now. Pleading that the Lord would hear his prayer. Which leads into our second point. Magnify forgiveness of the Lord. We just covered the first two verses about the urgent prayer of the psalmist. Now we will see the, the magnify forgiveness of the Lord in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 is, is quite familiar to us, and, and we kind of uh, looked a little bit of that earlier. But again, it's quite familiar to us. A lot of us quote that, or, or we, we kind of summarize that verse. That, that word mark there in that. If you, Lord, should, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. But that word mark means, and get this, I want us to understand that word mark. It's not simply like a lot of these, these youth, we give them a bunch of words and they just kind of tally. Mark, I said, I said this word, all right, mark. I said that word, mark, mark. That, that's not what that, that word mark means. He's not just tallying. The word mark means to observe diligently as to retain a perpetual memory of what is done or a rigid and judicial observation of all faults. Let me, let me read that again for you. To observe diligently so as to retain a perpetual memory of what is done or a rigid and judicial observation of all faults. If God, if you, Lord, should mark my sins, if you, Lord, should mark your sins, as we just defined that word mark, who could stand? Now put another way, if God were like an earthly judge who took down every minute circumstance of guilt, who would be able to stand such a trial or leave his court unconvicted or uncondemned? He is the judge of eternity. Who could leave unconvicted or uncondemned? It would be a very short trial. even make it to the stand where that gavel would fall. The word iniquity simply means sins. So if Yahweh was to keep track of every single one of our sins, who would make it through the trial? Again, <laughs> be a very short trial. This is the question that is asked directly after the psalmist pleads with the Lord for an audience. 
Now, he is not actually searching for a definitive answer, as he already knows what that answer is, and I'll get into that in just a moment. Since the Lord does not count our sins against us, us being those that trust in the the completed work of redemption by the work of Jesus Christ, his son, then we can stand. We are the, the ones that can stand firm in the presence of God. We are the ones that can approach the throne of grace boldly and with every confidence. We are the ones that can cry out with a loud voice to the sovereign God, and he will give ear to our cry. But to the ones that trust in themselves, those that that believe they are good people, that the the Lord will count their good deeds against their bad deeds, and the, the scale of judgment will tip in their favor. This is the delusion of earning merit. There is no scale of judgment. For our salvation is not on a scale. It is, it is all or nothing. It is completely out of our hands. Because if it were up to us, no one would ever choose God. We are incapable because we have loved the darkness more than the light. Psalm 70, uh, 76 verse 7. You, even you... That repetition there, you above all else, you are greatly, you are amazing, you are magnificent. You, even you, are to be feared above all else. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? When the wrath of God is poured out, when the wrath of God is on display, there is no stopping it. It is a terrible thing to live under God. The wrath of God. It is a terrible thing to live under the wrath of God, although it is not fully or completely poured out yet. We are witnessing the wrath uh, wrath being revealed more and more with each passing day. Yet those that commit the iniquities that are being recorded in heaven and whose names are not written in the book of life will not be able to stand in the end. They will be bowed low in judgment. But those who trust in the righteousness of Christ, although we do commit sins and iniquity still, if we earnestly call out seeking what David is seeking, then we will in the end be able to stand in the presence of the Almighty. Verse 4 finishes the idea of our second point. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be forgiven. There are two statements here that we should consider separately. And if we had a great deal more time, I would love to dive much deeper. But the first statement, but there is forgiveness with you. Going back to verse 3 and and reading it there gives us a better feel for what the author is stating. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. Through our sin, sin, verse 3 says we have no hope. It does not matter how good of a person you think you are. You could donate 80% of your annual check, 90% of your time to various charities. You could be the most inquisitive person about others, making them feel welcome in, in any place. But if you, you told one little white lie years ago as a child, you are a sinner, deserving of death, deserving of the wrath of God. You have earned the wages of death. Because the wages of sin is death. It is not cumulative. One sin means death. Adam and Eve did not commit a plethora of sins. And God finally had enough before he kicked them out of the garden. They sinned once. And they were out. That's all it takes. We all have sinned prior to coming to saving faith. Some more than others, depending on your own personal history. And when God opened the eyes of our hearts, but we still sin today. Some of us might have even sinned this morning. I know we we like to put on a a pleasant face that, that all is well and perfect in our lives, but we are sinners. 
things go wrong and, and we do stumble and we do struggle. The point is this. If we are in Christ, then each of us have experienced the sweetness of forgiveness. And we continue to experience the sweetness of forgiveness of God. Forgiveness of sins from their eternal, eternal penalty can only, can only be found in God and no one else. Forgiveness is, is all of God. It is from God. And he will forgive those that he wills and desires to forgive. Now the second part of verse 4 is, is truly astounding. And we should not rush by it when we read it. Again, let's, let's read verses 3 and 4 again in context. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Now, not feared as a tyrant is feared, nor avoided as cruel, but devoutly revered at a, as a pitiful father. Now, I say pitiful father, not, not, a, not a, 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 a weakling as we normally use that word pitiful. Not weak, not something to, to go aw about, right? But, but full of pity. Because what are we? compared to God. He is a, a father full of pity for his children. God will be revered by his children because of the abundant grace he has for us. Especially when we in our, our humble state recognize that salvation is from the Lord. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. There is no other way to salvation except through Christ he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. John 14, 6. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 9. That should be scary, though. A scary thought. If we enter through a different door, then you have not come to Jesus. You are still in your sins. You have only created a door of deception, an entry of your liking that meets your desires, that is easily on your terms and meets your fleshly desires and still encompasses your sins. But it is a false door that leads to a very real death. If we have the, the false idea that we ever play a part in our own salvation, then we, we revere God less. We diminish the majestic, the majesty of Christ and downplay the role of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives because we have the false sense of security in our own ability to earn the wages of salvation. And this brings us to our third point. Patiently waiting on the Lord. Patiently waiting on the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. When we, when we uh, endure or enter into a trial, what is our first response? Where do we, <laughs> yes, a lot of times that's exactly what it is, oh no. Or why me? Where do we go to find comfort? Where do, we, where do we go to find solace or peace? Far too often our first response is not to go to the Lord, but either to ourselves or, or someone we know. A lot of times it's a man-made solution or resolution. And a lot of times those fail. When the trials come, and, and they will come if you're currently not in one, young folks. A lot of times the first words that come out of our mouths are, oh no, why me? Are you kidding me? Whether the trial is something small, like your Facebook account gets deactivated, which actually might be a blessing. 
or something more severe like a bike wreck that damages your ribs for months or daily migraines that last for weeks on end and even relationships that are in trouble or family issues that seem to never get resolved. Whatever the trials that you are suffering through, how do you endure? Do you endure the way Christ did or David is in this psalm or Paul did? They endured with waiting and trusting or the way the Pharisees endured their trials with anger and with scheming. Verses 5 and 6 teach us how to endure just that opening salvo teaches something of great magnitude on I wait expresses that I will wait and trust in the Lord. Remember what we just talked about in the preceding four verses and what the psalmist is dealing with. He is suffering and crying out to God and now he's waiting and trusting that forgiveness is coming and will come from the Lord. He had pleaded. He had first sinned greatly against his God and then had pleaded with God and is now trusting that God will forgive him. It may not be that second. It may not be the next day. It may not be the next week or the next month, but he is waiting and trusting in the Lord. How astounding is that? How easy is it for us to wait? How easy is it us is it for us to wait and trust? We say that we do, but does your life reflect that? But who better to wait and trust on than the God who promised to do things and has never failed a single promise. He has never missed a promise. He has never 100% fulfilled a promise. We may say, yes, I'll be there at such and such a time, but then we may be five minutes late. Did you 100% fulfill that promise? You were there. God is never late. There is nothing that can thwart him in his purposes nor confound his counsel. The psalmist moves on to speak about his soul does wait. He is speaking of the innermost parts of himself. We can say all the right things, but the psalmist says, my soul my inner being does wait. This is his mind, his heart, and his emotions. The core being of his person is fully committed to waiting and trusting in God's deliverance. He has no backup plan if God does not come in a certain number of days or hours. David is committed to relying on the deliverance of God. How about your commitment? Do you see the promises of God laid out in his word? Knowing in your mind, in your heart, in the deepest recesses of your soul that no matter the trial, no matter the circumstance, the hardships that you're going through, that this is the providence of God. What I'm dealing with, this is what God wants me to go through. And I trust him. I am waiting on the deliverance of God. 
because this is what I need to strengthen my faith in him. I'm not asking if you know it here. I'm asking if you know it here. This is what our psalmist is saying. This is what David is saying. This is waiting and trusting in God. That word hope in our text does not carry the same definition as the modern definition of the word. The modern definition carries a connotation of doubt and possibility of failure or incompletion of the task. The biblical definition of hope is surety and of promised completion of tasks unfulfilled. It may, not, it may not be done right now or today, but it will be done later. There is no possibility of failure. It will be done. The psalmist has full trust and surety in the word of God through the scriptures. In verse 6, we see that he compares his waiting to the watchman for the morning. He actually repeats this phrase for emphasis, as this is also a crescendo uh, for those singing this psalm. Night watches are long and hard. Seconds seem like hours, and hours seem like days. Just like when you are in the midst does not seem so momentary nor light when you're in trials but they are we have all had our share of difficulties to some degree or another we all have two things in common though if you are in Christ Jesus was with us through it he never abandoned us he never pulled back he was right there with us And when we receive the weight of glory, these earthly trials will seem like momentary light afflictions. Just as Paul stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for momentary light afflictions is currently producing for us an eternal weight of glory far, far beyond all comparison. That is why they will seem like momentary light afflictions because of what we will receive. Parents who have had or still have small children who decide not to sleep at night or are sick all night long, you know how long a night can be. For those who have ever worked overnight, you know how long a night can be. Those who have even served in the military, you may have even done something like this in your day, standing watch or standing guard as David is illustrating here. It could be a difficult task standing guard on the watchtower or the city wall in the dark of night, watching for signs of impending attack from invading armies or animals or even the danger of a breaking fire. It is taxing on the eyes to peer into the black of night, looking for the signs of danger as you expose yourself to the possibility of attack. And the longer you do this, the more your imagination can play tricks on you. The more your mind goes to places it, not, it ought not to go as you need to be razor focused. These watchmen were not merely passing the hours by playing cards or chatting. They were busy watching, but also eager for the sun to come up, signaling the end of their watch. They were eagerly awaiting and trusting for the coming dawn. They knew dawn would come, and this would be their deliverance from their watch. But until that time, they had their duty. Just like the one who is despairing, waiting, and trusting for the deliverance of God. 
busily doing what they must do to be obedient to their God, but waiting eagerly and expectantly for the coming deliverance from their trials. And this brings us to our fourth and final point. Unique hope found in the Lord. Unique hope found in the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Looking at the final two verses of Psalm 130, I I do need to call out one obvious thing about the text, the, the context. This psalm states specifically the name of Israel, once in verse 7 and again in verse 8. This is because the psalmist was, well, he was of the nation of Israel. And as noted, was, was more than likely David, and, and shortly after his, his taking of Bathsheba. Now some in the, the broader church believe in what is called replacement theology, and there's some really big words that, that also um, encompass replacement theology, but we won't get into any of that. And that very quickly means that the church is the new chosen people of God and has superseded the nation of Israel in God's future plan. It gets really complicated. We're not going to dive into that because I just don't have the time to do that. And it's beyond the scope of what we're studying here. But I call that out because our text is specific to Israel. But there are things we can learn and are applicable as the church. But now looking at the text proper, verse 7 states, Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. In the character of God, there can be found ample reason for all the hopes to ever indulge. When you hope in the Lord, you will never come up short. Have you ever been disappointed when you hope in God? When you put your faith in God, you will never be disappointed. You will never be let down. With him is mercy and grace, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Or as verse 7 renders it, loving kindness. Loving kindness is that that pregnant word. There's so much that comes out of that word that we translate loving kindness. It's it's that, again, pregnant word. You can get so much out of that, that word. The second half of verse 7 and and verse 8 really deal with one subject. One of the most repeated themes of of the Old Testament and and even running into the New Testament is of the the exodus. This is not only how the nation of Israel exited Egypt, but more importantly how God redeemed his people from the chains of bondage. Both physical bondage, but also spiritual bondage. And in all of all of scripture, we should not find a sweeter word than that word, redemption. That word should spark in us some level of emotional response. I read that word redemption, I get a bit of a chill. When I, when I say an emotional response, I don't mean flailing and falling out of your seat or jumping, hooting and hollering there should be some sense of an emotional response and joy because you are the redeemed. You are the chosen people of God. And that's not every human being. You are the select of God, the elect as we call them. I don't know the ratio, but right now there's 7 billion people that live on earth. And in all human history, you are but a few that have been redeemed by God. So there should be some joy, for we are the redeemed. There should be some some sadness, for it was our sin that caused Christ's death. And that word redeemed should be a reminder that not all are on the road to redemption. 
This word redemption is a, is a term employed to express the deliverance of men from the misery of captivity, from the hardships of bondage, and from the, the guilt and wretchedness of a sinful state. Without redemption, you are lost, unknown of your own doom. You are blind, searching in a dark dungeon for the door that has no doorknob. Sorry for the doom. But it does not end here. No one must remain in that dark dungeon, nor remain blind, because as verse 7 ends, it says, with him there is abundant redemption. You could never fall out of being It does not say that he will meet you at the halfway point. It does not say that he, it is, uh, he is just waiting for you to make a choice. It says there is abundant redemption. That word abundant means infinite or ever multiplying. It does not matter if you think you are too wretched a sinner to be redeemed. Right here in this verse, the very word of God, God is saying, you are not too wretched for me to redeem. No one is too far gone for God. The last verse of this psalm, let me read it for us again. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Reinforces the gravity and magnitude of who our God is. The greatness of our redemption is truly hard to estimate its value. You can't do it in a vacuum. You can't even do it against your own personal history of sin. The greatness of our redemption can only be valued by the glory of its author, by the greatness of the price paid, by the number who are redeemed, by the depth of sin and misery from which they are rescued and by the glory that shall follow the completion of the work when we all get to heaven we shall see we shall see Jesus in all his glory and we shall see all the heavenly host and we shall see all the redeemed and then we might get a glimpse of the glory All men, since the fall of Adam, have needed redemption. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. The ransom paid is not silver or gold or tears or reformations, but the blood of the Son of God. When Christ was suffering on the cross and as he breathed his last breath, he uttered these words, it. These three words should bring great joy to us followers of Jesus. The work of redemption was finished fully and complete. All of it, not 50% or 75% and not just 98.5%, but all of it. It was finished. There was no more work to be done, not by you, not by me, and not even by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was done. Scripture states that all that is required for salvation is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The danger is not that we praise God for his abundant redemption, but we make light of our redemption. When we do this, we, we think too little of our Savior, and then we, we end up toying and playing with sins. We would never play around with a viper or a rattlesnake, would we? No, because we know that it's dangerous. That is never the mindset with sin, though. But we ought to have that mindset. Sin is every bit more dangerous to us than a pit full of vipers. 
Because if we make light of our redemption and consider little of our Savior, we are apt to repeating little sins and, and even big sins over and over again with little or no thought. His redemption is abundant. That means you have nothing to make it complete. You have nothing to add to it. If you sit here today waiting to be a better person before turning to Jesus, waiting to stop this sin or, or quit this habit or putting Jesus off until your relationships are better, I tell you right now to stop thinking that way. Jesus must have priority today. When Jesus has priority, those other things will fall into their proper places. Will Jesus make your life sunshine and, and smooth sailing? No, I can't say that. But I will say this, that all your sins will be forgiven. You will have the power of the Holy Spirit's discernment to assist you in your life, revealing to you what you ought to be doing and what you ought not to be doing. And with and the greatest, most important relationship, the one between you and the Father, will be made right. We divide ourselves at every level, rich man and poor man, conservative and liberals, Catholics and Protestants, boomers, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, and, and even now, Gen Alpha. But a more significant separation takes place when one comes to such a parable as that of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. On the one hand stands the self-satisfied man, quick to condemn his neighbor, slow to acknowledge faults in himself. On the other hand stands the truly penitent man who is so concerned with crying to God for mercy that he has no time to magnify the wrongdoing of those who surround him. When it comes to your heart and your soul, when dealing with your sin, which category are you more apt to fall into? The self-righteous Pharisee or the mercy-pleading, penitent, publican. Let us pray. Father God, we do oh so thank you that you are an amazing God, that you hear our prayers. When we are in the depths of guilt, of sin, we can plead to you. We can call upon you as the psalmist did here. When we are weighed down with that guilt, you can lift us up. But Father, I pray that we would have the wisdom of Christ, the mind of Christ, that we would put away these things, that you would bring them to our minds so that we could be more like Christ. We would walk as he walked, that we would be holy, Father, we know we cannot do this in ourselves. For we are flesh, fleshly things. We are wicked in our, in our own minds, in our own ways. You have called us out of darkness. And Father, without your help, without your spirit, we cannot do this. And Father, I pray that we would desire to bring you glory bring you honor through our living through our through our thoughts through our motives through ingesting your word the encouragement of one another and that is why you have brought us together as your church so that we would and so father I pray that we would incorporate these things that we have learned this morning we're thankful that you do not mark the iniquities. You do not keep track of the minute guilt that we have accumulated in our lives. That you have forgiven us all of these things. And it is for your glory that you have done this. We have received the benefits. Father, I pray that we will keep that top of mind and so we would not repeat those offenses live all to the glory of Christ our Savior and our Lord. Amen.
give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray.